0: Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energised starts here. Take a moment now with me to Reset.
1: This week on Reset the Podcast, we have Ben Slater, Senior Vice President Marketing at Beamery, a talent lifecycle management platform. In this episode, we cover different ways of working post-COVID, the best ways to recognize and retain your talent, and how to address the strategic issue of an emerging skills crisis.
0: Ben, how are you today? It's lovely to see you.
1: Yeah, lovely to see you as well. I'm, I'm great, thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Um, well, one of the questions I often ask is on a scale of one to ten, how energised
1: do you feel? I so ten. I'm um, coming day. in high energy. <laughs>
0: are you? High energy. Excellent. I mean, is there any particular reason you are so high energy today? It's
1: just, just well caffeinated. <laughs> That's always helpful, isn't it? Yeah. Uh,
0: good. Well, look, we're going to talk a bit about lots of the things that... Um, I'm asked about on a regular basis now, all to do with people, talent, recruitment. Um, And I think for many companies, it's one of the most exciting, also really, really challenging times that um, they've ever known. And and so I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about you, but also talk about um, some of those really big challenges, because as an expert in that sort of area, um, it would be great to hear your perspective.
1: Absolutely. Sounds good. good.
0: Um, well, I think I think one of the biggest challenges, I think there are kind of two, two that I'm hearing and it's not surprising. One is around how do we help people with the challenges in the economy at the moment? But the okay. first one before we come on to that is, You know, we have come out of the pandemic. Mm. There's been an extraordinary time over the last 18 months um, of people all, you know, the big resign. Now people are staying. We've got different ways of working. What's your take on what's just happening in the market at the moment?
1: Yeah, look, it's it's a great question. Uh, Good place to start. So I think... um, we have a couple of kind of macro trends happening. You obviously reference, you know, the pandemic and the great resignation. We also have a new generation entering the workforce, um, a generation that has, I think, a fundamentally different approach to the way that they think about applying for jobs, the way they think about engaging with brands as a consumer. And I think you also, some in some ways to kind of meet the requirements of the new generation in some ways just based on the proliferation of new technology platforms you have you know a wave of new businesses right you know the kind of creator economy etc so I think you have a lot of of change and transformation and I think what has happened by virtue of the pandemic is that all of these mega trends have been accelerated and you know when we look at Things like work from home, when we look at the great resignation, I think at the heart of it is this changing preference to the way that people want to engage with work. And I think it's oversimplistic to say that is purely generational. I think that what we actually have is a number of emerging worker archetypes, right? Different people want different things from work, and that is okay and having a more flexible hybrid environment allows people to get what they want versus everyone you know sitting in the cubicle working nine to five you know clocking off and going you know back back to their family there are people that want to you know treat work as an adventure and a very kind of commercially minded or entrepreneurial and see this as an avenue of creativity and then there are people that you know want to work to maintain a certain lifestyle and you know there are you know i think three or four other stereoty- or archetypes rather that are important to the way that we should think about the workforce and i think that the most successful companies are creating work models where they can accommodate for different worker archetypes versus forcing people into a certain box
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it i um i've just been reading Rather late, I think, Richard Branson's Finding My Virginity autobiography. And, right. you know, he reminded me personally in the book, um, you know, that actually Virgin, a number of years ago now, came up with the idea of unlimited holidays. Right. You know, some of the things that we're now beginning to see tried and tested, very different ways of working. Right. Um, You know, I think it's quite easy for perhaps entrepreneurs like me that have run businesses that are relatively small for years in a much more fluid way. Um, You know, I'm fascinated at, have you looked at some of those companies that have actually been doing some of these things for some time and learning from that and going, okay, that was interesting, but but now there are very different types of businesses that are really excelling in this space? Or is it the companies still like Virgin that have um done quite a lot already and are now going on to another level.
1: It's it's really interesting. I think, you know, you we look kind of historically at the way that companies adopted almost like a sort of a few fu- an internal futuristic approach or a level of flexibility around how work gets done. I think the initial wave is the versions of this world which are focused on flexible leave policies, um and you know benefits that allow employees to thrive I think what we're seeing now particularly across our customer base is the ones the customers the companies that are innovating are the ones that are taking a job and breaking it down to the skills that are required to get that job done and the component units of work that are again required to satisfy the requirements of a certain job so instead of sort of looking at a job as a a title and a binary box, right, in which you need someone to sort of sit all the time, you can say, for us to succeed here, we need this set of skills and we actually need these five units of work. That could be actually taken up by five people, you know, working in a flexible way, or it could be done by one person or it could be done by two part-time people. And obviously, you know, to do that effectively in technology solutions that allow you to understand people's skills and the skills that they may be able to learn in the future and you also need to have a a flexible approach to the way work gets done within your organization and be open to short-term internal gigs or work projects. I think that's where we're going but there is a lot of transformation and change that needs to happen for us to do that successfully, right? Mm. I think the, the term that's often referred to is uh, talent hoarding, right? And that that's a, a reference to, you know, me as a manager, for example, not wanting my team members to go and take projects on other teams because I lose the capacity. So this has to be an organizational wide attitude to the way that work gets done. And, you know, companies also to have to set the expectation that people that work at that business are the resource of the business, not the resource of managers.
0: Right. I mean, there's quite a lot there.
1: That's.
0: (laughs) Can we go back to the first part around you know, kind of what I would say is uh, almost deconstructing a job. Yes. Okay. What do we need? How does it work? And where? I guess where can they work from? How are we going to measure their output? Can you give me an example? Give me a a, even if it's a slightly futuristic example of what that could really look like, so that we can really understand it. Because it sounds to me, I mean, really brilliant. But I don't know how people could really go, okay, how does that work?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with the actual job design, right? In the majority of organizations, the job design starts with, you know, a list of experiences that you want someone to have accomplished um, for them to be suitable for a role. If you actually start with, okay, these are the 10 skills that we need from someone, to fulfill the requirements of this role and every part of the process is tied to how do we actually resource those skills then suddenly you're almost flipping the proposition on its head I think without that change it's very difficult to actually execute it and also execute it at scale
0: yeah I think that's fascinating and and actually um there was a one of I think our advertising industry's most brilliant new business directors has recently employed a guy and we were talking about it the other day and she was saying um you know what i saw his cv and i loved the sound of him so he's been uh, a, a gb skier he's mm. built a business himself he's done a degree he's worked for the un but he's never worked in an agency in his life and he's coming in at, at a relatively senior level mm. because of his experience but he's got no experience and um so the team interviewed him and went he doesn't fit you know he's doesn't he's too senior and he's too junior and he just doesn't fit and, and they went okay just look at his skill set just look at mm. what he's like as a person we can teach him a whole load of stuff but has he got these capabilities i think it will be very exciting
1: yeah
0: and he's just started so it'd be fascinating to see what happens yeah. but to me that was very enlightened and i think it takes a leader mm. one who's pretty confident in their ability to lead a group of people Mm. to say do you know what you don't need to all be pigeonholed into exactly the same places but you can you can move around and and I wonder whether if that's going to be the future do we need to change how do we change the headset of those managers those leaders to
1: think differently I mean look I think it's going to take time it the the way that organizations are going to be successful over the next 5 to 10 years is by understanding the skills that they have today within their company right and the actual half life of a skill is is not very long i think there's a lot of research out there to indicate that you know organizations that go through a 3 to 5 year exercise to map their skills which is historically how long it's taken in certain instances by the time they've done that, sort of 50% of the skills that they've mapped are now irrelevant, right? So the skills required in a company are changing very quickly. So companies, I think, need to have a continuous view of the capabilities they have today and they need to understand that okay, based on what they're trying to achieve as a business over the next five to 10 years, they're going to need, you know, a mix of skills which is slightly different, right? And you know, that's the kind of business logic that goes into this proposition because. They need to understand, okay, out of the employees that I had today, who can I build into the skills that I need tomorrow? And, you know, where do I need to go and hire from the market to make up the deficit? So that's, that's I guess, the first piece. And that needs to be married with how do I help someone achieve their career ambitions at my company, right? And, and as you've said, and I guess as we've covered, the career ambitions might be, you know, more akin to working their way up the corporate ladder, or it could be, hey, I want a job that is going to give me flexibility with my family and allow me to do these other you know, life pursuits. So they need to be able to marry that, those two together, and then they need to be able to show employees how they achieve what they want out of their working life at the company, right? And that could be by servicing shorter-term work projects to them, It could be by showing them how they progress within an organization, the skills they need to learn to get to different levels, but it has to be employee-centric, the solution, because we go through life with these deeply personalized experiences of consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Netflix and Amazon, et cetera. And yet in a work context, most of the time, the advice we get is how to go from level one to level two. Well, what if you want to approach your career like a jungle gym, not like a ladder, right? And, you know, there's a lot of talk today about squiggly careers, right? Like, oh. how, do, how do you navigate through the squiggles, right? And it, it all comes back to basing the experience around the employee, um, giving them a, we like to call it a Beemre, a sort of Google Maps for their career, right? Turn by turn navigation to help them get to the destination that they're looking for. And I think the companies that are going to be successful are the ones that are able to marry up what the employee wants with where they need to go to be successful. And it all starts with that unit of the skill.
0: Yeah, uh, I completely get that. And I, and I think that's a brilliant step forward. I think then the other side of the equation is traditionally, mm. we've seen for, for the poor old HR people such a massive shift. In the last couple of years, um, you know, and what my experience now is, and you know, and I'm and I'm relatively new to spending lots of time with HR people. Uh, I've spent lots of time with marketeers and business leaders, but less so HR. Partly because they haven't been on the board before. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are, are, have, have kind of moved up there quite quickly, or at least they're having that kind of conversation in the board. But my observation is that they have two kind of long-term skills that are not in their DNA and perhaps mm. haven't been seen and therefore it's difficult for them to, to learn or, or actually emulate. One is that kind of interaction with the board mm. um, and having these big conversations and a big strategy. It's much more around tactical or even just taking the HR handbook and, and making sure it's full. The other side... Um, is is around being leaders themselves Mm. partly by that I mean you know if I look at leaders in other functions they know what they do they know what external experts do they have a budget they have you know accountability and again my observation for most not all and some Mm. of them you know is that they've never had that and they still don't really have it they have like pathetic budgets they think they have to do everything themselves. They have no time to learn. Um, and therefore, you know, they are doing a brilliant job of trying to step up. Mm. Actually, it's really hard. And, and I feel like, you know, probably something that you're doing to help them. But that it it's a massive big step change. And I think, for me, it's the biggest thing that's holding back businesses at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we've if you go and read every kind of pwc or mckinsey study um for the past sort of 25 years on you know what ceos want or what they're prioritizing talent usually comes up the top of the list right <laughs> there or thereabouts and yet as you said traditionally um hr budgets are the first to get cut right like hr leaders are the ones who are least empowered you know um, perhaps the CHRO is the one C-level figure that doesn't have an influence with the board, but that but that's really changing, right? And I think we're we're seeing a new generation of empowered strategic HR leaders within organisations because we're entering a talent and skill crisis, right? Organisations do not have the talent they need to be successful. There are not the required number of people with the skills in the market for everyone to hire the, the people that they need to be successful. You know, there are issues with attrition. There are issues with upskilling. You have huge sections of companies' workforces whose jobs are going to be made redundant by or by automation. You know, these are big strategic problems that are going to actually map back to an organization's ability to win in the market. So the role the role of the HR leader has actually never been more strategic. The tooling that they have at their disposal now to understand and get this data and also be able to act on it, both internally in terms of, you know, upskilling, reskilling, and redeploying talent, and externally in terms of building their employment brand and attracting the best people to their business, you know, that's never been more effective. There's AI used across the entire talent lifecycle to help organizations identify, recruit, develop, and retain the right, the right people. So, you know, I think we're we're seeing a, a different type of leader, we're seeing a different type of empowerment. And look, in our conversations at Beamery with you know, CHROs are the world's largest organizations, they have a seat at the table. And you know, particularly during COVID, right, they were the right hand in many instances of the CEO because you know we're entering a generation where business problems are talent problems so to speak and you know companies need to resource the department that's going to help them ensure their future from that perspective
0: so from um you mentioned ai there and mm. we are seeing you know, ai being used increasingly across as you say the the hr life like a customer cycle in, in a way but We've also seen AI come into all aspects of business. Some of it is super useful and brilliant, and some of it is actually probably not very helpful. Which bits do you think of the AI journey are the most helpful to those HR people, but also businesses in general?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there's a couple of principles of AI which I think are very important for us to remember. The first is that my perspective is that, you know, effective AI is kind of human in the loop AI, particularly in a talent standpoint. And what that means is that AI can help create recommendations that is based on uh, inference or data within uh, a company system. But the human is still the person making the decision, right? Organizations can't Um, delegate decision making around hiring right or progression to uh, an algorithm the second principle is that ai needs to be explainable and transparent you can't act on a recommendation if you don't understand what it's based on and there are a lot of ai models out there that are black box or opaque and will not actually give you the rationale behind why recommendations being made. So you're choosing Ben over Brad, but you don't really know why. Um, and, And the third is, and this is interesting based on what we're seeing in terms of a new regulatory environment around AI, is that you need as a business to have a ability for consumers to interface with your AI. And what I mean by that is, I think we're entering a sort of GDPR 2.0 scenario when it comes to the fair use of AI and you need to be able to offer consumers, users, candidates, right, in this instance, the ability to set preferences around the way their personally identifiable data is managed by the AI algorithms that you use as part of your business processes and very few organizations are able to do this today. Um, but we are seeing new regulation in New York. We're seeing uh, regulation coming in in California, which is going to mandate the businesses approach uh, approach AI with a new lens of compliance. So I kind of want to share that first because those three governing principles are very important. No matter how AI is is used across your conference. Now, from a broad business standpoint, there are huge opportunities for process efficiency, um, for automation of of, uh, kind of manual repetitive tasks, for richer reporting, for better business forecasting, and for insights that have not been possible to generate to this point. You know, from a talent standpoint, we've talked a lot about skills in this conversation. AI helps organizations really quickly understand the skills that exist across their company. It helps them understand the skills that someone might be able to learn based on where they are today. So it gives you an ability to understand who someone could be tomorrow, uh, which is really kind of tapping into this idea of potential in a tangible way. Um, And it really helps empower recruiters or HR people to operate as strategic advisors, right? because they are able to remove themselves from the manual tasks that have taken up a lot of their time and really operate much more strategically. So I think there's a lot of potential, but organizations do need to tread carefully when it comes to increasing regulation and when it comes to expectations that candidates have around the fair use of their data. I mean, gosh, we are 100% looking at the most privacy-conscious generation of people entering the workforce to date, right? Look at Apple's primary marketing message, right? It's no longer around the iPhone's features, it's around privacy. Um, You know, we're seeing it across ad platforms, we're seeing it across cookies. So companies do need to take this seriously. It can't all be focused on uh, speed or increased efficiency.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I can see that completely. And then, you know, I think... It, from going from sort of one extreme to another, from yeah. the use of AI and the future and some futuristic to, to kind of really now that you know, what I hear on a weekly basis is mm. how do I get my people back to work? Mm. How do I get my people back into the office? How can I build a culture if I don't have people wanting to be in the office on a regular basis?
1: Yeah, and look, there's there's not a silver bullet. Um and, you know, we've, we're a global company at Beamering, um, but we were founded in London and that's where our headquarters are. And we recently opened a new office. The office that we opened was very different to the office that we had before COVID. It is focused on creating collaborative spaces, it's focused on um, helping people come together and do the work that does not work well over Zoom and Slack. And you know, we put a big focus on what do people want and how do we how do we provide that? And look, we see pretty good occupancy occupancy Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office. Obviously, Monday and Friday are a little bit lighter, but we're conscious that you know there are things that are better done at home than are done at the office, but we want to make sure we believe fervently that the office is a big part a competitive advantage, if you will, of what makes Beamery great. And that's why we wanted to invest in it. Now, we we paired that investment with a new policy around um, around leave and around um, benefits that help people take their foot off the gas. So we launched, at the same time as opening the new office, we launched a policy called Beamery Explore, which allows employees to work 25 days from a different country um, we launched a policy called Fridays Unplugged, which gives every employee the first Friday of the month off. And you know, it's a realization that, you know, building a company like Beamery, which is, you know, in the top few percent of fastest growing businesses worldwide is hard. Right. And, you know, we have a big, bold, ambitious mission of um, unlocking the potential of every human on the planet and, You know there are times where people you know have to have to work uh later hours or have to really lean in and we're conscious of that and we want to you know make sure that people have the time to live the lives that they want um but for us pairing that with a commitment to working in person was important um but i think it's very challenging as a company to mandate one thing or the other because organ- because people have so many options and yeah, you know you see this with the company that mandate yeah. they have you know increased attrition and it's it's you have to you have to get the balance right.
0: yeah it's difficult though isn't it I think man because uh, yeah. you know, I've seen uh, if I talk to our psychologists, it is mm. not surprising that people don't want to go back to work because psychologically there's everything inside us going, don't go, don't go, you're safe, you're safe in your house and it's really nice and you like it and you don't want to see all those people and you don't want to travel. And it's and we don't always know what's best for ourselves. And so, you know, in some ways we need to be pushed into doing these things. And then, as you've just talked about brilliantly, you know, creating culture if you don't have people in an office. Yep doing other things um, is very challenging. But equally, I see absolutely no point in going to an office and then sitting in front of a Zoom call or a Teams call or in front of a computer, frankly, all day. I really, you know, I didn't want to do that. So I can't believe anyone else does. But then I I think there is, for me, another reset that there's less talked about, which Mm. is the ways of working. So, you know, if we if we've gone from a space where everyone suddenly could be involved in everything mm. and you could sit in every meeting because you literally didn't have to move from your screen. And now you have to physically go to places you can't you can't fit everything in. Yeah. So I think we've got to change again. I think there's a big reset that needs to happen. Um, and I wonder if you it, it, you know, either at Beamery or some of your clients, what are you doing to enable that to happen?
1: Yeah, I, I think look, it, the, these decisions are when 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 they when when these processes work effectively, it's based on managers of teams getting it right. And what we focus on at Beamery is, you know, we have corporate values that we believe are important and that you know should govern the way that people operate at Beamery. But really, it's down to the managers on individual teams to ensure that those are reflected in the way that people work. And I I think the same thing is true of of what we're talking about just now. You know, any company can set a a policy, right, around work flexibility. But ultimately, they are reliant on line managers, frontline managers to have a degree of empathy around how people work, and you know <laughs> everything else that people have going on in their lives, and you know not everyone intuitively understands how to do that, right? So, yeah, a lot of responsibility in organisations to train and enable those managers, and you know create the 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 kind of systems to help them be successful. But that, but that for me is what it comes down to.
0: Mm. And from your own personal point of view. You know, as you said, you are one of the first growing companies. Um, You have a focus on unlocking people's potential. It's all about people. Do you feel an added pressure in running, being part of the leadership team running your business to make sure you're kind of either better or, you know, you're more empowering or you're kind of living what you say more than even your clients are?
1: It's a great question. I mean, what we talk about a lot as a, a kind of watchword for this is, is being talent first. And I think that can mean different things in different contexts. Um, you know, it's something that obviously we try and help our our customers achieve, you know, being more talent-first, and that really is an approach to technology, people, process, programs, etc. Um, but of course, you know, as as a vendor that's trying to work with customers, partner with customers to help them transform. You know, we we have to focus on how we transform ourselves. And, you know, we we do make a lot of internal investments around this. I think if you look at our kind of HR um, employment brand, uh, impact teams as a proportion of company headcount, it's probably larger than other companies would be at our stage. And it's because we we do see a lot of value into investing in this. And look, no one, no one is suggesting that we get it right all the time, but it's something we think about a lot and we and we really try and ensure that you know at Beamery, we're building a legendary company, and that means so much more than you know, market share or customer acquisition, right? It means that. People come to work every day feeling like this is the place where they can do their best work. And you know, when people look back at their career, they see Beamer as a sort of rubber stamp on their CV, right? And that's that's the environment we're trying to build. um But look, you know, we we certainly we certainly don't get everything right, but uh you know, our head's <laughs> hopefully in the right place.
0: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I I. Uh... I feel it as a great sense of, personally for me, as a great mm. sense of, uh, you know, like we talk to our clients all the time about not sending emails late at night, not mm. working weekends, um, but having really good meeting discipline, all of those things. Uh, and like, you know, we're, we're a tiny little startup company, but we have somebody who looks after our people and she's mm-hmm. bringing employed. employee mm. I mean, I think with Oyster Catchers, it took me five years, to four years probably, to employ anyone to do with HR at all. Mm. I just did it. You know, literally she's about the second person, third person that, that I employed on mm. a part time basis, very senior, to make sure that we look after our people, we think about those things. Um, and, and I do have a really great it, – it makes me, apart from growing the business and doing brilliant work – and like you, you know, resetting the workplace, mm. is what we want to do um, is it's the thing I worry about the most because, you know, I think one about is the example that we show to others, but mm. also the way that we're building our business. And it's hard when you're trying to build a business and it sort of go, it goes against all of those things, because typically entrepreneurial environments and companies are very hard to work in. They're fun, brilliant. Mm. But, you know, slightly mad and chaotic. And, and actually, my previous company, Oyster Catchers, we've got a reunion. And I, I am absolutely bowled over by how many people want to come. And the one thing they talk about is it was such an amazing time. They all worked so hard. But it was, you know, literally some of the best years of their whole lives. Mm. So um, I love hearing that from you. And I love mm. hearing that that's what you're trying to do at Beamerie. Um, for you personally, mm. what made you want to go into this area? What made you, you know, want to
1: want to be part of that mission? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's a great question, and I think one of the really exciting and enduring things about Beamer is that mission of you know unlocking human potential and creating a, a more level playing field, right, for the world of work. Um, has always been the core of 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 the business. And look, I joined Beamery a couple of months after we started the company. Uh, and I've been here for pretty much the entire journey. And you know, for, for me, what what was exciting is, you know, I, I remember kind of earlier in, in my career, you know, there is a there's obviously an enormous amount of inequity in the workforce. And it felt, you know, kind of going through earlier, kind of career positions that I had had that decisions were being made not based on you know who I who I could be tomorrow right but based on a very sort of simple binary assessment of my past experience and the thing that was exciting to me is well gosh what 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 could be different right is there is there a better world right where you know we're creating a fairer way of for companies to assess talent we're Removing, I guess, what we refer to at Beamer called as the passport lottery, which is, you know, you your your life is based on where you're born, essentially, right? Um, And anything that we could do to to level the playing field there was was something that was super exciting. So, so that was what attracted me, and it's the thing that kind of continues to to make me excited about coming to work um, on on a daily basis, right? And look, building a company like Beamer is not always easy. Like, there's there's certainly challenges, but um yeah, I think it's it, we're doing something important.
0: Yes, yes. And I think you know, if I look at our seven needs test, what we know is having mm. a sense of purpose, both within the business you're working in and within your own sense of purpose, um is really important. It's really important to our motivation, our energy, our well-being. Mm. Um Has being involved with a business with such a clear purpose also made you think much more about your own personal purpose and how that works, maybe even outside
1: work? It's a great question. Um, I think it probably has, but in a way that's slightly imperceptible. I think there is a real blurring of the lines between um, kind of your work and your personal life. And you know that's not to say that you should be working all the time, but I think it 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 means that at least what I want from work, and you know, like probably a specific type of archetype as a result, is is something that is exciting and aligned with my personal mission. And you know, obviously, being in a mission driven business, I think probably over the last eight or nine years, that personal mission has changed slightly, right? And um and focused, and you know, I'm sure a lot of that is based on um, based on my role, yeah. Mm.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I think when I first sold Oyster Catchers to a PLC, I, I sort of assumed, I think you know, I, that was my third business, mm. um, I think I'd sort of assumed that everyone was driven by a certain sense of purpose with their business, even though I met loads of people who didn't really like their jobs, of course, mm. I knew that. Mm. Um, but it never crossed my mind that people wouldn't particularly at senior level wouldn't really have a sense of purpose that went beyond the commercial outcome of a business and i was so shocked and it wasn't that they weren't nice people and that you know many people i've met in business are not nice good leaders caring individuals that they don't you know to your point they don't have a purpose led business i think that's changing and i mm. think and i would say um you know, now working with Centaur, still five years later or so, it's one of the things I am delighted to feel in the business, a much greater sense of purpose, a much greater sense of thinking about what's right for the people, putting in, you know, to your point, some of the things we've been talking about today. Um, and I think maybe they don't even notice that that's what's happened. But I think that I think the CEO is very aware now, whereas before... I just don't think it passed. I just don't think it really crossed their mind. Um, so, uh, again, I'm interested for you, mm. when you see these different companies, do you see businesses that, one, have this kind of people focus but also have this sense of purpose, are the ones that do better or does it make no difference at all?
1: I think 100% does. And I think the the, the primary reason, to be completely honest, is, is again, based on these changing work preferences, by and large, people want to want to work for a company or buy products from a company that stands for something. Um, I mean, look you can see you can see it with some of the consumer brand, brands that are incredibly successful, Nike, right? It, you know, Nike. A couple of years ago, re- released a pretty controversial advert where they um, they highlighted Colin Kaepernick, who at the time was you know, wrapped up in quite a controversial. Um, initiative with the NFL. He had been a successful quarterback at one of the NFL teams and um, was kneeling during the national anthems and, you know, led a movement uh, in support of black Lives matters that was, you know, tied into his actions, a protest on and off the field. And, you know, this ended up contributing perhaps to him no longer having a job in the NFL. Um, but Nike chose him as, as their spokesperson, right. And the message from Nike was, you know, stand for something even if it means losing everything. And, you know, ultimately that's what people want from brands. And, you know, it could be seen as a risk from Nike, but, you know, ultimately it's pretty aligned, I think with you know, the core message mm-hmm. they're trying to put out as a business and pretty aligned with, you know, their core consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, but that's what we all want, right? Mm. We want to feel like we're part of something. We want to feel like, you know, the things we're doing matter and be they purchase decisions, right? Or the time we spend at our desk, you know, wherever that desk might be. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Um, have you got a time, Ben, when uh, you have been really challenged mm. by the values that you hold, um, either having to... Not do something because it went against your values, or or actually doing something that did go against your values, but going well, I've got to do this because of the business we've got or, or the situation I'm in. But there's
1: not really a time that comes to mind, to be honest. I think my my values, the things that I believe are important, are pretty well aligned with with Beamery's values around you know ownership, authenticity, communication, curiosity. Right, you know these are all things that I believe. To be important and you know i'm lucky to work at a company that values authenticity and values people speaking their mind and you know empowers people to do so but you, you know i could certainly see myself if there was a situation in which i didn't feel that was the case so i worked another type of business you, you know i i could certainly see the requirement to to speak up
0: mm-hmm. interesting um and then for sort of finally really uh, mm-hmm. as you know we talk a lot at Let's Reset about how mm-hmm. well we to performance. And I'm wondering whether you see that changing as well uh, as a broader place within, you know, business, how you see that going, whether whether businesses are beginning to measure that now, whether it becomes an important part of a strategic pillar for companies.
1: Would you be able to repeat the question? Sorry, I, it's a little bit of a oh,
0: commitment. sorry. Um, so where well-being links well, to performance, so the well-being of the staff, mm. uh, you know, whether that where that becomes almost like a strategic imperative, or whether it's something that really is becoming more important, or is it just you know, it's a nice to have when things are are not quite so challenging.
1: Uh, I, I mean, look, I think it's it's one of the many things that organisations know they have to invest in when it comes to, you know, ensuring that people stay and thrive at their organization. um, I think it's it's obviously, you know, not the only reason why people would stay, but I think it's a big part of it. And, you know, believing that your organization cares (laughs) about you as a person and about your well-being, I think is an enormously compelling part of uh, an employee value proposition. And, you know, if you couple that with, showing a you know an employee how that they how they can you know develop and learn and upskill and grow within their career then that's a very powerful combination. Mm.
0: And what do you do uh you know you clearly work in a very dynamic mm. fast growing environment what do you do to make sure that you look after that you know your sort of well-being your own energy and your ability to perform at your best?
1: Yeah I mean look I I have a couple of kind of habits or rituals that I think are very important for me personally. And, you know, exercise is a big one of those. Um, Taking the time out to disconnect, whether that's through, you know, meditation or just reading a book is important. Spending time, you know, with friends, be that at the office or outside of the office. You know, these are all things that kind of mentally help me disconnect and mentally help me keep going. But, you know, that's different for everyone, right? And you know, I I think we have to have this deep understanding that we're not all built the same, right? And, you know, we have to let people disconnect in their own ways and create an environment where that's allowed, and you know, where that's encouraged.
0: Brilliant. Ben, thank you very much. Um, I had lots of questions that just I'm asked on a regular basis. So you've done a brilliant job in explaining them to me. And, you know, I love uh, the philosophy behind Marie, and I think you know, for you to be able to be part of those businesses that are really challenging and changing the workplace um, is is fantastic, much needed. And and I hope that in these kind of times as we come out of COVID and still very challenging economically, um, that businesses will take on different ways of working and attracting and retaining their talent to make that really significant difference.
1: Absolutely. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Vicky.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson. With me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.